Have you ever seen something transpire and the response was inappropriate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the, something happens and it's far greater than the response. Isn't that just like a, it's kind of like, you know, I used to sing, uh, I used to write songs for my wife to try to win her heart, you know. <laughs> and I remember one day I, I, I snuck into her apartment and I set up my keyboard and I set up a speaker and I waited for her to come in. And when she came in, I sang her this song that I wrote for her. And it's, it said, I will love you all of my days. And I know you will love me too. Deep in my heart, I am amazed. No one loves you the way I do. Search in my heart for some way to show you just how deeply I feel for you. But words can't express how I feel inside me because no one loves you the way I do. And that's just the verse. The chorus gets deeper from there. I expected her to cry, to smile. I expected her to fall apart. I expected her to melt. That was the appropriate response. Instead, she just looked at me and said, you were a little flat on that one note. (laughs) This is what Paul is talking about. Paul says God sends his son Jesus out of eternity onto earth in the form of human flesh, dies on the cross for our sins and presents us with this glorious gospel of the kingdom. And when we hear the gospel, God expects us to cry and fall apart and melt and go, I can't believe God loves us so much. But instead we go, yeah, that sermon was a little flat a little bit. Yeah, the worship team wasn't quite on point. You know what I'm talking about. The bass was a little off. Not today. Not today, though. (laughs) I wasn't talking about this team. (laughs) Paul says you got to respond appropriately. I beseech you, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And then he says, let me explain how. First of all, he's going to talk about unity. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, For there is one body and one faith, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and in all and through you all. He says, the first way to respond appropriately to the calling with which you are called is unity. And the the type of humility that leads us to unity. Understanding that we're all the same. Understanding that no one of us is in, in need of God's grace more than anyone else. That no one of us needs God's grace more than anyone else. Every single one of us stand on an equal plane before God. We are all sinners, and if we are saved, we are saved by the same grace of the same Lord Jesus Christ. There's one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God, Father of all, who is above all and in all and through all. Paul says, first of all, there's unity. But then he goes to the second component of that, and the second component of that has to do with individuality. First, there's unity. And then there's individuality, but the individuality is defined by Paul as different giftings. 
What individuates us is the fact that he has gifted each and every one of us uniquely and differently. And when he starts to talk about the uniqueness of our giftings, he talks about Christ ascending on high. He says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And there's a but at the beginning of that verse. But, he says, yes, there's unity in which we're all the same. Verse 7, but... To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he took captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He's talking about us. He gave us gifts. And in verse 11, it says, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. So he says, what individuates us is that God has gifted us all differently. And then he explains why. He, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, till we all come to the fullness of the measure of the stature of the body of Christ to a perfect man. It says, then we'll no longer be infants tossed to and fro with every wind. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we'll grow up in all things into him who is the head. So he says, first of all, understand that there's unity. Secondly, there's a diversity of gifts. Thirdly, the diversity of gifts is so that every member of the body of Christ might be built up, empowered and equipped, and might come to full maturity in Christ. And then below that, from verse 17 on, he talks about not walking according to the way we used to walk in the world. He says, I beseech you, therefore, or he says, um, anyway, we won't get into that. I can't call it to mind right now anyway, but it'll come later. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. There it is. If you're in doulos, you know that. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk according, uh, the way the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Okay, so he's going to talk about that for the rest of the chapter. So those are his four points in the chapter. But when he gets to this second point, where he says God has gifted us all differently, when he's talking about the gifts of God that are uniquely distributed to each member of the body of Christ, Ernst Keismann defines a gift of the Spirit as the specific portion of the believer in the dominion of Jesus Christ. When you, if you want to understand what it means for God to give gifts to every member of the body of Christ differently, it means Jesus has this, this huge thing called dominion and glory. Like this huge bucket of dominion and glory, and it's all his. But then he comes to Emily and says, I got a little dominion and glory for you. Sharon, here's a little dominion and glory for you. And Annie, here's a little dominion and glory for you. Chinway, I got some dominion and glory for you. Dyrell, here's a little dominion and glory for you. And he's got enough dominion and glory in there to give every member of the body of Christ a specific portion of his dominion and glory, and no two of them look the same. That is the specific portion of his dominion and glory that he gives to you as his unique child. It doesn't look like anybody else's portion. And that's why we all need one another. It speaks of the interdependence that each member of the body of Christ has with every other member of the body of Christ. That is, if you think about it, the body of Christ is a hyperlinked entity. Every member of the body of Christ is hyperlinked to every other member of the body of Christ. And if you want to fully understand any one member of the body of Christ, you have to understand, number one, the gift that that one member of the body of Christ is to the rest of the body of Christ. And number two, the gift that the rest of the body of Christ is to that one member of the body of Christ. We are all hyperlinked to one another. And even our diversity and our differences speak to our unity and our oneness. Isn't that powerful? But that's not even what my sermon's about today. I haven't, that's just the context. I want to set up the context 
Because we got to delve a bit deeper into this dominion and glory of Jesus. It starts by saying he ascended on high, took captivity captive. That's crazy. Took captivity captive. He says, I need a slave. Who's my slave going to be? Slavery. You are my slave. I need a captive. Who's my captive going to be? Captivity. You are my captive. He took prison as his prisoner. He took captivity as his captive. He took, ah, I just bit my tongue. Mm. Oh, I get too excited here sometimes. Mm. He took slavery as his slave. That's some gangster stuff right there. That's crazy. He ascended on high, took captivity captive, and then gave gifts to men. From that place of victory. This is speaking of the jubilation of Christ. The extreme victory of Jesus. His victory over everything, meaning there's nothing that he is not victorious over. If you could see him right now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and everything is under his feet. Everything. Things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, under his feet. Sickness is under his feet. Disease is under his feet. Demons, under his feet. Nature, under his feet. History, under his feet. Everything is under the feet of Jesus. This is the extreme victory and dominion and glory of Jesus. But Paul says, so that you do not subscribe to a triumphalistic theology in which sharing in the victory of Jesus means that you never have a problem that you never have a trial. So that you do not subscribe to the type of triumphalism that would say that if you walk in faith, you'll never be sick and you'll never have trouble and you'll always be rich and wealthy and healthy. And if you need anything, you can just name it and claim it. Let me explain to you what came before his jubilation. Because before there was a jubilation of Jesus, there was the tribulation of Jesus. He says in verse 8, he ascended on high and took captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then there's this parenthetical statement in verses 9 and 10. And he says, now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul says, yes, he ascended, but before he ascended, he first descended. He says, if you want to enter into the dominion and glory of Jesus, if you want to enter into the power of his ascension, you must first be willing to enter into the tribulation of his descension. You've got to descend with him before you can ascend with him. Are you following me? Now, when it speaks of him descending, it's first speaking of the incarnation. He descended from heaven to earth and became human. It's pretty good to be God, right? Sitting at the right hand of the Father, angels falling down, worshiping him, has no needs, no desires, no pain, no tribulation, no trouble. Everything happens at his command. All is well. Pretty good, huh? He gives that up. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following. Who being in very nature God, considered it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant. He empties himself. He does not cease to be God. He empties himself of the prerogatives of his divine nature. He simply says, I'm still God, but I'm laying aside the benefits for a while. What are the benefits of being God? You get to be everywhere present. You get to be omniscient. You get to know all things. You get to be eternal. You get to be unchanging. You get to be all-powerful. He takes all of those benefits and lays them aside and then takes human flesh. He's at one place at a time. His body is undergoing changes. He is susceptible to sickness and even unto death. His knowledge is limited. He humbles himself. He descends from his place of glory and majesty to be incarnate in human flesh. This is the incarnation. This is really the beginning of his suffering, being born. Can you imagine you've, ex you've existed in eternity with the Father, you've never known suffering, and all of a sudden you're being born. You're coming out of the womb of a woman. And you're screaming, and they're holding you upside down and slapping your butt and cutting the umbilical cord, and you're pooping everywhere, and what in the world is happening here? Can you imagine how traumatic? This is the beginning of his suffering. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's suffering. They didn't have anesthetic back then. They circumcised baby boys with a sharp stone. Yeah, enough on that, huh? <laughs> like, oh, Lord. I didn't come to church to be uncomfortable. The beginning of his suffering was simply just being on earth. You know, even if the devil doesn't attack you, and even if you never have a trial, it hurts just to be human sometimes. I mean, just being human, you know? You get constipated or you... You know, you eat something bad, you know. I mean, it's just, it hurts to be human sometimes. There's some stuff that's just a part of your humanity that hurts. Sometimes it just hurts to wake up in the morning. When that alarm goes off and you need more sleep, you're not ready. It hurts. That's suffering. But he doesn't stop there. He descends even further into persecution and crucifixion. And death. And, and it doesn't stop there because it says he descended into hell. He goes all the way down to the pit of hell. Now, wait a minute. I mean, if you just think about this, just stop this. Just think about this for a second. Because the way most believers think about the will of God is if I'm in the will of God, nothing goes wrong for me. And as soon as something goes wrong, you say, well, this must not be the will of God. Lord, are you punishing me for being outside of your will? Why do you feel that? Because you're in a trial and you think if, if God really loved me, he would not allow me to walk through this trial. Well, tell that to Jesus. The will of God took him to the cross with nails in his hands and feet and a crown of thorns on his head. The only difference, well, one of the main differences between you and Jesus is he knew even in the midst of his deepest suffering that he was in the will of God. He was suffering because of the will of God, not because he was outside of it. But he had to go all the way down to the pit of hell and take the keys of death and hell out of Satan's hands. 
And he was there for three days. He spent three days in hell. The will of God caused him to spend three days in hell. What's the point I'm making? Yes, he ascended, but you can't ascend unless you first descend. And the power of his ascension, the power of his ascending into heaven and seating at, being seated at the right hand of God is juxtaposed. Listen, how high you go is only perceptible against the knowledge of how low you were. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, those of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, into his descending. Baptized into Christ means I'm joined with Christ in baptism. I'm becoming one with Christ. I'm, I'm on the same journey as Christ, not just as my, as my example. But I'm baptized into his presence, into his being, into his history, into his likeness. Paul says, you were buried with him in baptism. Literally, when Christ was put to death on the cross and laid in the tomb, when you go under the waters of baptism, you're put to death and laid in the tomb with Christ. And when you come up out of the waters of, bath, uh, of baptism, the stone rolls away and you're brought out of the grave and ascended, and, and now you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 2. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my daughter. Have you read them? No. Y'all got to read them. You got to get on that. No, seriously. The Chronicles of Narnia is it's not a children's book. Well, it's seven books. But they, they're not children. I mean, I read them to my daughter, but when she gets older, she's going to have to read them for herself. Actually, I'm glad I didn't read them as a child because I wouldn't have got it. But now that I'm reading them as an adult, it's just blowing my mind. Totally blowing my mind. Aslan, every single book, Aslan brings you closer to Jesus than you could ever imagine. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, by the way. Aslan is Jesus in the book. And he wrote every single one of those stories to communicate something about Jesus, some truth about Jesus that we see in the scriptures but don't understand. And my daughter and I are on book six right now, The Silver Chair. And uh, what's hard is I read to her, but then she falls asleep and I keep reading because I can't stop. It's like, <laughs> the next night I start reading, she's like, wait a minute. What happened? I don't remember. Where, how did we get way over here? <laughs> I'll just tell you later what happened. The silver chair, it starts with these two young people who are in school. They're being bullied in school. And they're running from these bullies, and they come to this wall, and there's a door on the wall. And they're just trying to get away from the bullies, but they open the door. And when they go through to the other side, the door had become a portal to another world. When they close the door, they're not on the other side of the wall. They're on a high mountain. And they were about to find out just how high that mountain was. They come to the edge of it, and there's the sheerest cliff that they've ever seen in their lives. And when they peer over the cliff, they look down and immediately get sick to their stomach. Why? Because the clouds are so far down there. The clouds are further below them than the clouds are above us. When you look up and see clouds, they're looking down, and the clouds are further below them than the clouds are above us. So this is higher than the highest peak of earth, and they're not on earth anymore. They're in another place. And the boy Eustace actually... He falls. He, he freaks out so bad that he falls off the, off the cliff. Sorry, this is a bunch of spoiler alerts because I know y'all ain't going to read them anyway, so I might as well just tell you. 
Don't worry. If you read it, it's not lost. I, I promise you it's going to be better than me telling you the story. I promise you. Nothing is lost. Aslan runs over, and he starts blowing, and, and the little girl has never seen Aslan before. This huge lion comes and falls next to her and, and leans over and starts blowing. And she's like, what is going on? And he's like, and she looks over and sees a lion blowing, and she's thinking, oh, great, I'm about to die. This lion's about to eat me. And then the lion gets up and walks off without looking at her. She finally comes to, she wakes up, and she gets up, and she realizes that she's dying of thirst, but she hears running water. She's dying of thirst, but she hears running water, but doesn't know where it is. So she starts following the sound of the water. You know, when you first begin to seek God, it's because you sense that there's living water somewhere, but you're not quite sure where it is. You know it's there, but you're not right, quite sure where it is. And so you might look over in Islam for a little while, and you might look over in Hinduism for a little while, and you might look over in Buddhism for a little while, and you might, you might look here and there. You might look into worldly philosophies and secular humanism because you hear the sound of the water, but in all these places you find that the water is not there. And you continue to search. And suddenly this young lady, she comes around a bend, and, and there's this beautiful, pristine lawn. And in the distance, right there on the other side of the lawn, is a crystal clear spring of crystal clear water. And just as she's about to run to the water and drink, she sees that the lion is sitting in the field right in front of the water source. And she freezes. He's bigger than any lion she's ever seen in his life. And all of a sudden, the lion speaks to her and says, Child, if you are thirsty, come and drink. Whenever I do my Aslan voice, my daughter gets scared. She's like, Daddy, I'm scared. <laughs> like, you're supposed to be. He's a lion. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> she thinks to herself, I know this lion didn't just talk to me. I must be flipping out because I think that lion just talked to me. And the lion speaks again. Child. If you are thirsty, come and drink. And she says, but I'm too scared. And he says, then you will die in your thirst. And she says, will you promise that you won't hurt me if I come? And he says, I make no such promise. You know what I hear in that request? God, do you promise that nothing will go wrong for me if I come to you? Do you promise that if I come to you and receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, you'll fix all the ills of my life and you'll make everything well? I make no such promise. And anyone who makes you that promise, come to Jesus and all will be hunky-dory, is lying to you. She says, have you harmed children before? And he says... I have swallowed up boys and girls and kings and queens and emperors and empires and cities and nations. Oh, dang. <laughs> he is a gangster. I'm going to write a book one day called Gangster God. Can nobody out gangster God? She says, will you go away so that I can drink? And he simply goes, Translation, heck no. This is my water. You can't come to the water and not come to Jesus. You're not just here for water, you're here for me. 
See, so many people come to Jesus for the water instead of for the Jesus. All I come for is I want to get past this depression or past this sickness or past this trial or past this tribulation. I don't actually want Jesus. It's called vampire Christianity. You just want a little bit of Jesus' blood for your sins. I want the benefits, but not the benefactor. I want the blessing, but not the blesser. And suddenly she can handle it no more, and she runs to the water, and she begins to drink. And when she begins to drink, suddenly she's strengthened. And when she stands up and looks at the lion, he says, come to me, child. And she, and she says, I felt that I had to obey him. Yeah. And so she, she comes and she stands right before his mouth, thinking maybe now he's going to destroy me. Maybe now he's going to eat me. And he says, child, I have called you to this world for a mission. And she says, no, 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 no. We called you. Her and the boy Eustace, they had actually cried out, Aslan, Aslan, please save us. They said, she said, we called you. She said, and, and Aslan says, you could not have called me unless I had first called you. Come on. Yes. The whole reason why you became aware of the fact that you needed God was because God made you aware yeah. of the fact that you yeah, needed man. God. The whole reason you knew to call on God is because God knew to call on you. And wherever it was that you went to find Jesus, actually Jesus came there looking for you. He says, I have a mission for you. He says, I'm sending you to the world below. Remember, she's on a high mountain. And he says, I will guide you in your quest by the following signs. And then he gives her a series of signs. And she says, I see. And he says, child, you do not see nearly as clearly as you think you see. Tell me the signs that I just told you. And she couldn't remember a single one of them. And he says, child, on my mountain, the air is thin and your mind is clear. But when you go down below, the air will thicken and your mind will cloud. You must remember the signs. If you forget the signs, all is lost. And he gives them to her one by one again and says, repeat them to me. And she repeats them to him. And he says, repeat them again. And she repeats them again. And he makes her repeat them over and 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 over again until she memorizes them. And he says, child, Repeat them every night before you go to sleep and repeat them every morning when you wake up. If ever you forget the signs, all is lost. I will guide you by these signs. If you forget the signs, all is lost. When you get down below, the signs will not look as you anticipate them looking. They're not going to look the way you think. And so you must remember them at all costs. The air's going to thicken. Your mind's going to cloud. You're going to forget who you are. There's glory on the other side of it, but first you've got to descend. It starts with her in a high place. But in order to actually experience the victory of Aslan, she's got to go down to the low place. And he blows her on the wind of his breath all the way down to Narnia. And her adventure begins. And the first thing she experiences when she's reconnected with Eustace, her little school friend, is irritation unforgiveness, they get in a little scuffle, now they're mad at each other. He's mad at her for making him fall off the mountain. She's mad at him for not listening to her because she saw Aslan. She's like, no, I'm the one who saw Jesus, okay? You need to listen to what I say because I saw Jesus. I, well, I, don't tell me you saw Jesus when you just pushed me off the mountain. You a hypocrite. That's what you are. Don't, I, I, I'm ghetto-fying it. It's not exactly what they said. It's the new ghetto translation of, it, of the Chronicles of Narnia. 
<laughs> it's the chronic of Narnia. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Sorry, that was... It started out on the earth. Her journey started out on the earth where she had to deal with, isn't it interesting, she has this powerful encounter with God, but the next minute she's on earth arguing with her friend, just like nothing had changed. It's interesting, you could have the most powerful encounter with God right here in this place that you've ever had before in your life. God could radically change your life, but when you go home, you're still going to have that same argument with your mama that you've been having, and, and your brother's still going to get on your nerves the same way he got on your nerves, and, and somebody's still going to cut you off on the highway, and you're going to feel like cussing them out, Right? And somebody's still going to, like, all the stuff. Listen, when Jesus comes into your life, when he transforms your life, when you encounter him powerfully, it doesn't actually change the stuff of your everyday life immediately. But you've got to fight through all that to remember who you are. And to remember what you saw in his presence and what you heard in his presence and what he promised you. And he told her, meditate on this day and night. He's talking about the word. Psalm chapter one, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He meditates day and night. He wakes up in the morning and starts meditating on the promises of God. And in the middle of the day, he meditates on the promises of God. And before he goes to sleep at night, he meditates on the promises of God. Uh, Why? Why do I meditate on Scripture first thing in the morning? Why do I meditate on Scripture throughout the day? Why do I meditate on Scripture before I go to sleep at night? And if I wake up in the middle of the night, what do I do? I meditate on Scripture. Why? Because otherwise I will forget who I am. And I'll start to feel that the cares and sorrows of my daily existence are more real than the revelation I received on the mountain when I met with God. Their journey gets worse. It gets worse. First, they dealt with tribulations on the earth, and then they had to go down under the earth and go all the way down into hell. And when they got to hell, they found the captive that they came there to set free. Isn't it interesting? Why did they have to go to hell? Because there was somebody there that they had to set free. If you get this in your heart and mind, everything will change for you. Every single time you experience hell, it's because God sent you there to pull somebody out. If you get that in your mind, they knew why they were there. They knew we're here for one reason, to look for this person. When we find him, our job is to set him free and get him the heck out of here. We're not here to live. You got to get that in your heart and mind. Are you experiencing hell in some area of your life right now? You're not there to live. You're there to find the person that God sent you there to pull out and then get the H-E double toothpicks out of there. And they find this person, and they set him free. And just as they're about to leave, Satan walks in. In the form of a woman. Don't read too much into that. I'm just telling you the book. (laughs) I'm not making a point. And she starts her enchantment. First she lights a fire and throws some dust on it. And then she begins to strum her harp. And she says, where are you from? They said, we are from the overworld. She says, there is no overworld. 
Yes, there is. It is a place where there's sky and sun and moon and stars and trees. There are no trees. There is no sky. There is no sun, moon, or stars. There is only here. There is only my world. And they start to be enchanted. They're like, yes, you're right. There is no sky. There are no trees. There's only your world. You come to the place where you start to experience darkness and you start to believe that darkness is all there is. You can tell when somebody's under that enchantment because you start talking to them about breaking free from their place of depression and fear. And they say, no, there's no way for me to break free. This is just who I am. This is just my thorn in the flesh. This is just how God has created me to live. I just got to learn how to live in this place. As soon as you lose hope of ever climbing out of your pit, you are under the enchantment of the enemy. Don't you realize that the greatest lie of Satan is that you're going to stay in that place for the rest of your life, that there's no freedom from the oppression of the enemy against your life if he can get you to forget who you are. If he can get you to forget that you met with God on the mountain and that when you met with God on the mountain, there was nothing but freedom there. I've had encounters with God in which I suddenly began to possess all things and nothing was missing. I've had encounters with God in which I came to a place of such victory and such power and such peace where I felt like if the devil were to come stand in front of me, I would rip him to shreds with my bare hands. I've had encounters with God that have taken me to such a high place that I felt that I would never, ever again experience any type of torment or any type of tribulation because I had too much victory and have always been disappointed to come right back down to the low place and experience the same kind of trials and tribulations that I thought I was far away from. And I didn't, but it took me so long to realize that when I come down, it's because I've come down to get somebody. I've come down to find somebody. I've come down because God doesn't want me on the mountaintop with, me, with him by myself. He wants me to go down and get somebody and take them back up to the mountaintop. And when I bring somebody else, he's going to send me back down to get somebody else and take them back up to the mountaintop. I've got to come down so that you can come up. What is this he ascended except that he first descended? What is this victory, this jubilation of Christ except that it was paid for with the tribulation of Christ? Are you going through trial? See, the first thing that happens when you walk through a trial and a tribulation is the devil starts lying to you and telling you you're going through this trial because God's not pleased with you. You're going through this trial because you've sinned against God. This is not a trial. This is judgment. God is judging you because you've made so many mistakes because he told you to go left and you went right because he told you to do right and you did wrong because he told you to stop and you kept going because he told you to keep going and you stopped. He told you to go forward. You started doing the moonwalk. That's why you're in the situation you're in right now. And you need to wake up and remember who you are and start telling the devil that he is a liar. The woman starts enchanting them. She's playing her harp and she's saying, there is no Aslan. There is no overworld. There is no sun, moon, and stars. And, and, and they start, and just as they're falling into that incantation, one of the members of their party wakes up and realizes he's got to put that fire out. And he goes over to her fire and stamps it out with his feet. And yes, his feet are being burned by the flame, but two things happen. Number one, when he stamps out the fire, he puts out the en- enchantment. And number two, the pain of stepping on that fire woke him up. Sometimes God wakes you up with pain. 
You remember when Elijah went to sleep under that broom tree and said, Lord, take my life for nobody else serves you but me. I'm the only one left. And no, just kill me. Just let me die. Oh, God, I done failed at everything. Just kill me. And then he goes to sleep and it said the angel of the Lord smote him on his side. And that's how he woke him up. Wake up. What in the what? Do you know how jarring it is to get slapped in the side? Just let somebody come slap you in the side and see how you feel. Sometimes God wakes you up with just a little jolt of pain, just enough to get you to wake up and say, hello, I'm not living in this place anymore. And he looks at that woman and says, I don't care what you say. We were not created for this place. I was not created to live here. And if I have to fight to the very end of my life, I am not staying in this place anymore. you got to come to that place where you're no longer willing to be enchanted by the devil. I'm not living. Wake up. Wake up and make war. You just made a treaty with the stuff the devil has done with you. I guess this is just the cross I have to bear. Wake up and make war. And when they woke up, they said, we will fight you to the very death, but we are not staying in this place. I will die trying to get out of this place. That's when you really know that you're awake, when you're willing to die to get out of the dungeon that the devil has locked you in. When you say, come hell or hot water, I'm getting out of here. you got to make up your mind. See, the enchantment of the enemy brings you into such a place of discouragement that you just begin to believe that the place you're in is impossible to escape. And as soon as you get to that place, you've begun to believe that Satan is stronger than God. Either that or God is unrighteous because God has locked you there. And both are unbelief. And immediately she turned into a serpent and they drew their swords and did battle with her and they cut off her head. And when they cut off her head, the enchantment broke. And when the enchantment broke off of them, they opened the doors and the enchantment had broken off the entire underworld and everybody was free. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. Uh! I remember in 2007, the Lord worked miracles for me and my wife to buy a condo. In 2011, the Lord did not work any more miracles. And we lost that sucker. We bought it for 500K. It short sold for $265,000. The Lord worked miracles to get us in. I had to have a little talk with Jesus and tell him all about my problems. I said, Lord, how is it that you work miracles for me to buy a house that you knew I was going to lose? And the Lord said, son, a whole bunch of your people are about to lose their homes to foreclosure. I'm sending you ahead of them. They're going to see a man of God walk through this and keep his faith. You're going to put this serpent to death on their behalf. You see, I thought if it was God's will, he would save me from having to go down into the lower place. I thought if it was God's will, he would prevent me from having to go down to a lower place. But no, the encouragement is he sent me down to the lower place to find somebody, to get somebody, and to bring them out. And yes, I'm coming out, but guess what? I'm not coming out alone. This is the journey of Christ, and we have the privilege of going with him. The Christian faith is not just a pathway. It's more like a conveyor belt. That's not a good analogy. (laughs) 
It's one of them, when, you, when you're in the airport, what do you call those things? The, the moving walkways? It's called a moving walkway. You get on it, and it's already moving you in that direction. Even if you stand still, it's moving you there. But if you walk with it, it doubles your speed. That's what the Christian life is about. And the moving walkway under you is the way of Christ. It's the journey of Christ. And you know what? You stay on that walkway, it's going to take you down into the depths. But you got to stay on the path. When you go down into the depths, you're tempted to say, I better get off this path and find a different path. No, stay on the path. Why? Because he who descended is also the one who ascended. And so when you find the path leading you downward, you just got to say in your mind and heart, he who descended is also the one who ascended. And if I stay the course, if I walk, if I trudge through this hell, if I stand before the demons that I got to stand before and do not forget who I am. If I meditate on the signs and don't forget his words, if I hide them in my heart, I'm telling you that this path is going to lead out of hell and it's going to take me all the way to the heavens where I'm going to sit with Christ far above all power and principality and dominion and might. Amen. Some of you here right now walking through hell. That's a good segue. Somebody come start uh, playing these uh, keys up here. Some of you in this place right now are walking through hell. Others of you in this place, you're on the earth. What happens when you're on the earth or when you're walking through hell is you start to remember the mountaintop and it doesn't seem real anymore. You start to remember the encounters you had with God, and they don't seem real anymore. You start, you read the Bible, but it doesn't seem real anymore. You might even memorize scripture, but it doesn't seem real anymore. I'm telling you, that's the most important time to cling to what you have believed. That's the moment of victory. That's the moment at which your victory is being worked out in the furnace of affliction. That is the moment in which Christ is proving and delivering to you your specific portion of his dominion and glory. Your specific portion of his dominion and glory requires that you fight a specific battle. You say, Lord, how come nobody else has to go through this? Because your specific portion of the dominion and glory of Christ looks different from everybody else's. So your trials have to be different. Say, God, how come I have to carry more than other people have to carry? Because you're going to carry more glory as well. Because there's something on the other side. There's victory on the other side that I've laid in store for you. And you've got to walk through this valley in order to participate in that glory. Even, your, even the trials of the believer are preparation for glory. Even your pain is preparation for promise. Your hardship is preparation for the next hallelujah. Your burdens are preparation for your blessings. But you've got to stay on the path. One of the greatest maladies of our generation is the tendency to forget the Lord in the valley. Forget the Lord in the midst of the trial, to forget the Lord, to forget his goodness, to forget his graciousness, to forget when he called you, to forget when he set you apart, to forget that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. You got to make a decision. I'm going to remember the Lord. I don't care. Come hell or hot water. I'm going to remember Christ and his deep, deep love for me. Bow your heads today. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus.
that you would break the enchantment of the devil that lures us into a place of passivity that sings us to sleep I pray you wake us up I pray for the smelling salt of the Holy Spirit to be broken under every nostril wake up Rise, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will give you life. It is high time to awake from sleep for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's time for us to, to put on the deeds of the day and to put off the deeds of darkness. It's time for us to wake up. God, wake us up right now. Wake us up. Wake us up. Wake us up. In the midst of the valley, we must wake up. We must be awake in the valley. In the midst of the pit, we must awake. As long as we can stand our ground and remember who we are and remember who you are and remember who you are in us and who we are in you, all is not lost. Even if everything appears to be lost, as long as I remember who you are in me and who I am in you, as long as I remember that you called me and that you set me apart, as long as I remember that I am a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we might declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As long as we can remember that, all is not lost. As long as we can remember that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As long as we remember that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor height nor depth nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As long as we remember that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who are the called according to his purpose. As long as we remember that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. As long as I remember that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus as long as we remember that he has put all things under his feet as long as we remember that there's power in the name of Jesus as long as we remember that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world as long as we remember that we've been saved according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctification of the spirit and through the blood of Christ as long as we remember, as long as we remember. And this is why, Lord, you gave us communion and said, do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. This is why you gave us your word and said, meditate on it day and night. This book of the law will not depart from your mouth. You will meditate on it day and night. You'll teach it to your children. Don't forget. God, wake us up to the remembrance of who you are and what you've done. In the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we would know that victory does not come when our situation changes, but when our minds awake, when our hearts awake again. Victory comes the moment we break free from the enchantment of the enemy and we begin to believe again. Victory comes when we come back to our senses and remember who we are. Yes. Hallelujah! There's an awakening in this house. I feel it right now. I feel it right now. I feel it right now. That lie of the devil is breaking off of your life right now. It's that enchantment of the enemy. We stamp out that fire of the devil, that song of the devil. We silence it that's lulling you to sleep of passivity and complacency that's bringing you to a place where there's no more fight in you. There's more fight in you. You are not done. You are not done. You are down but not out. You are shaken but not stirred. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, 
in the name of Jesus. No weapon forged against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises up in judgment against you, you shall refute. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is of me, says the Lord. He's the one who said, touch thou not my anointed, and do my prophets no harm. He's the one who said, vengeance is mine, I shall repay. I'm telling you, I'm mad today. I'm ticked off today because the devil has been coming after the children of God. And I'm telling you, I'm not standing for it anymore. For this reason, the Son of God was made manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And right now, in the name of Jesus, we declare that the works of the devil are broken off of your life today. No more. No more. No more. No more. In Jesus' name. Now just stand up on your feet and just begin God, give, to give God praise. Come on. Lift up your voices and begin to give God praise. Clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. God, we worship you. God, we praise you. We thank you that there's victory. We thank you that there's freedom. We thank you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Lift your hands to the Lord. Precious Heavenly Father, we glorify you today and we thank you that you're in this place. Holy Spirit, I pray that you take every word that was spoken today that was of you and apply it to every heart in a way that goes beyond anything that I could ever intend, anything that I ever could have purposed, because the word is yours and not mine. I pray, Holy Spirit, that anything I spoke today that was not of you, that you'd remove it from every heart and every mind and solidify the things that were of you. And I know, Father, that your word does not return to you void, but it accomplishes that which you sent it to accomplish. And so I rejoice in you today because I sense the truth locking into hearts and minds today. I sense eyes opening and hearts awakening. I sense that there's been an awakening from sleep today. And I thank you that your people hearing this message are going to go forth from this place, not forgetting who they are, not forgetting the dominion and glory of Christ that has been given to them, and knowing that the descending is only the prelude to the ascending. The tribulation is only the preparation for the jubilation. And even if we go into the depths, we never accept a place there because you've prepared a place for us in the heavens. And this is where we dwell. I speak your blessing over each and every heart and each and every mind. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, May the God of peace, who through the eternal spirit brought back forth from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he give you peace.